Reconstructionist Radio presents a War Room production, Once Dead, where brothers and sisters in the faith share God's grace upon their lives, how they were once spiritually dead in their trespasses and sins, but are now kingdom-driven by the grace of God so undeserved. My name is Tom Smedley, and I was once dead. I was born in 1951 in Swickley, Pennsylvania, the firstborn son of blue-collar Catholic parents. I was born with a broken arm. My survival was viewed as a miracle, and I imbibed with my mother's milk the notion that I was special and destined for special purposes. Although I did not realize it until the age of 55, I was also born with autistic spectrum issues, an inner life so fascinating that I had trouble meshing with events and people around me. During the worst part of my pilgrimage, I embraced a religion that advocated seeking Gnostic truth within. This exacerbated my neurological issues, and it was only by the kind and miraculous grace of God that I was lifted out of my own skull and given a grip on life. So, as I tell my story, much of this testimony will be given in terms of what was going on in the world around me. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Let's stay on safer ground. Most of what follows is the testimony I discreetly share with college students in the class I teach. R.J. Rushdoony wrote, The end of an age is always a time of turmoil, war, economic catastrophe, cynicism, lawlessness, and distress. But it is also an era of heightened challenge and creativity of issues and their worldwide scope. Never has an era faced a more demanding and exciting crisis. This, then, above all else, is the great and glorious era to live in. A time of opportunity, one requiring fresh and vigorous thinking, indeed a glorious time to be alive. We baby boomers were well aware of the negative stuff going on and desperate for better answers. As a culture runs out of gas and begins to implode, do you go back or forward? Esad Bey, born Lev Nussenbaum, was a Jewish lad from Central Asia who wrote prolifically in German and lived through one catastrophe after another. As a young man who was nostalgic for the multi-ethnic Azerbaijan of his childhood, he converted to Islam, reasoning that the Ottoman Empire's umbrella had made the zesty, peaceful diversity possible. One of the most poignant works of historical scholarship ever read had the memorable title Nostalgia for the Modern, State Secularism and Everyday Life in Turkey. Turkish scholar Esra Uzurik interviewed the aging children of the revolution who remembered their own youth as a time of energy, vision, zest, and limitless new possibilities. Kemal Ataturk completely remade Turkish society in the decades following 1924, and new worlds of opportunity opened up for the proud citizens of a new nation. A rather tedious novel, but one worth reading if your interests lie in that direction, is Umberto Eco's The Name of the Rose. As the narrator details in detail the various signs of social and cultural disruption, including a plethora of uh, now-forgotten apocalyptic cults, the reader keeps thinking of the two things the monk scribe narrating the tale could not foresee, the Reformation and the printing press. How does one resolve the claims of competing cultures? Which story does he embrace as his own heritage? How do you pick the winner? Carl Smedley was town marshal of Mount Dora, Florida, a century ago at the end of the open range era. Cowboys who did not like the new ways occasionally suffered beatings if caught with pliers in their saddlebags. They had a habit of making gates as they pleased in the barbed wire fences, you see. 
On the other hand, Grandpap explained, if you ever had to pull a cactus thorn out of your horse's hoof with your teeth, you know why pliers were important. This Methodist cowboy met a Catholic governess who was on vacation with the family she served, smitten. He drove a buckboard a thousand miles from central Florida to western Pennsylvania, converted to Catholicism, married a woman who died a half mile from where she was born, and had lots of kids. He traded in the clean air, wide open spaces for spectacular sunsets and a job in a steel mill, smoked a pack a day, and died of cancer at the age of 86. The urban northern Catholic Milu is one component of my cultural identity. My mother's folks were part of the same story since the Eastern Rite Ukrainian Catholic Church participated in the great achievement of integrating the tide of immigrants from southern and eastern Europe into the American mainstream a century ago. As Catholics, we held other faiths in disdain, not a recipe for making friends when we moved to a rural southern Protestant area. Soon after, I realized that Genesis and science could not both be true, and reluctantly cast my vote for science, the source of so many visible miracles. But I was lonely for God. I began attending public schools, was steeped in the religion of Americanism, and found a way to navigate life in terms of that faith through the Boy Scouts of America. Like Freemasonry, the BSA preached the value of religious commitment but refrained from picking the winner, since we were all part of a larger community that transcended sectarian differences. Meanwhile, in the background, the Vietnam War quietly escalated. Other issues I perceived as irresolvable in the Catholic perspective, especially puberty, made the New Age perspective look attractive for a while. Why not dance with an evolving deity inside an evolving universe for life after life? However, the studied rootlessness of this westernized Hinduism made a stable life or personality impossible. The harder I sought to find the light within through yoga, meditation, hypnotism, etc., the weirder I became. Some worldviews work, others don't. During a disastrous first year in college, a few evangelical Christians spent hours over the course of months in friendly confrontation. I faced the very real possibility that maybe they were right. The Son of Man might indeed be the only game in town. If so, though, I would need to accept his terms rather than try to negotiate my own. My conversion happened after a last-ditch attempt at flight, a frantic 200-mile bicycle ride. While I stayed at a Skid Row mission, God confronted me with a verse, Choose this day whom you will serve, and an insight. If I refused him this time, it would be even easier to do so the next time. There would never be a better time than right then. With a damn the torpedoes full speed ahead, I embarked on the wild and woolly ride of the Jesus Freak. I now had a story and started looking for people who shared it. Amazingly enough, several of my drinking buddies from college had undergone the same experience. We rented a house in Roanoke, Virginia to see what God would do next. It was at this point that the conundrum of Christ and culture became apparent. During an amazing moment, the counterculture suddenly wanted to hear about the man from Galilee. Revival broke out, creating its own norms and forms and mores. We, the Jesus freaks, had the real thing. An intense and all-consuming religious experience. They, the church Christians, had their traditions, their costumes, their rote routines, their tidy commercial charismata, and a structure that could chug along on its own just fine, thank you, with or without God. I plugged into a series of full-time ministry projects, offering my services to such endeavors as the Pentecostal Tent Crusade and several street missions. Given my clumsiness with human relations, however, this was a recipe for disaster, and it added, ended badly. I ended up burned out with a five-year blank in my resume. Then the Vietnam War ended, the counterculture predicated thereon faded into the nihilistic silliness of the disco era, and the apocalyptic brand of Christianity predicated on the counterculture was left behind. Our world ended. The world didn't. What the?
For a while I adopted the history of the Methodists as my own, attracted by John Wesley's achievement in transforming England for the better. I earned a Methodist license to preach, married a Methodist girl, acquired a B.A. in Humanities from a Methodist college. Cognitive dissonance sent in again when I opened my eyes to the unpleasant fact that the leadership and resources of the United Methodist Church had long since been hijacked by the agents of a different faith. Yes, this story is actually going somewhere. Several things happened in the early 1980s. A young man I'd led to the Lord in 1970 returned the favor by giving me a stack of books by R.J. Rushdoony. I discovered that there is such a thing as a Christian worldview, that Jesus is Lord over the vast universe around me, as well as over the half-vast universe inside me. I also discovered my day job of technical writing, translating the garbled utterances of engineers into plain English. I learned about homeschooling, and our first two children came along. As I tell my students, I came to grips with the position I hold today, an uneasy balancing act between the charismatic and Calvinist strands of the Christian faith. I was influenced by the warmth of a Presbyterian pastor's preacher and by the light shed on a number of issues by Presbyterian writers. A coterie of Calvinist writers and thinkers are making systematic attempts to apply their faith to all of life, not just the religious part. I think it's a movement with a future since it cherishes its deep roots in the past. We tend to be bookish folks with prehensile feet, the better to stand on the shoulders of giants, my dear. We can build upon the achievements of those who have gone before us, Catholic, Orthodox, and Protestant, to develop our understanding in terms of the faith once handed to the saints, while vigorously and cheerfully contending with foes inside and outside the camp. After a decade of intense self-education, I took my own sights on their first academic test drive, earning an MS in Corporate and Professional Communication at Radford University. As my contribution to the quiet reformation that was gathering strength under the radar, I tackled the question of the social maturity of homeschooled children. I couched my arguments in the sacred liturgical language of this Darwinian age, statistics. This gave them unfair credibility, perhaps. Today, if you Google the three words homeschool socialization, my name will show up on most of the first 50 hits. Others have done better. Oh well. But I still wondered... We Jesus freaks were convinced that enormous changes were afoot, and the event was over, and the culture was worse off than ever. I had more reading, thinking, praying, and writing to do. Henry Van Til referred to culture as religion externalized. Another writer, Gary North, suggests that any culture needs to answer the following questions about ultimate reality. 1. What does a society believe about God? 2. What does a society believe about man? 3. What does a society believe about law? 4. What does a society believe about time? When they can no longer offer convincing answers to these questions, societies, like people, run out of gas. The 60s-era counterculture embodied the suspicion that our leaders had misled us and had something other than our good in mind as they kept a no-win war simmering as a back-burner money machine. Acts of raw judicial activism imposed unpopular and even evil mandates upon the public from leaders who had ceased to represent the nation's best interests. The U.S. Mint went into the counterfeiting business in order to fund the Vietnam War without visibly raising taxes by debauching the currency. More recently, the World Wide Web has permitted previously suppressed viewpoints to see the light of day, despite horrified admonitions to ignore the little man behind the curtain. When the rulers and ruled, leaders and led feel alienated from each other, change is afoot. If the perceived power gap is too great, a surly discontent that endures while despising the status quo can rumble at a low boil of cynical resignation. Many Turkish proverbs reflect this attitude towards power. Eski hamam, eski tas, same old bathhouse, same old washing bowl. Eat hooter, caravan gooter. The dogs bark, the caravan moves on. 
Sooner or later, though, a tipping point is reached, often catalyzed by something totally unexpected. The Soviet Union fell almost overnight when bootleg copies of the Gulag Archipelago circulated around the Soviet managerial class, and the nomenclatura realized that they were wrong about the color of their hats. There were not heroic social engineers creating a new earthly paradise, but the architects of hells on earth. As anyone who lived through and studied the era can tell you, communism was, for a while, a living faith that inspired millions of people. Then, it wasn't. A 1992 conversation with an English teacher doing a Dnieper, Dnieper River boat cruise broke my heart. She grew up seeing herself as part of a, the grand adventure, Ukrainians and Russians as Slavic brothers building a modern scientific utopia so wise, fair, and just that the whole world would envy it. Then Glasnost opened the records, and she learned that the Slavic brotherhood was more like that of Cain and Abel. The guards and the boarders had the guns pointing in to keep desperate comrades from escaping rather than out to fend off eager aspirants to the collectivist dream. I have a 14-year-old son, she said, and I'm glad that you are here to talk to us about God. I hope you will come to believe in God because it's important to have something to believe in. I'm not ready to believe in anything yet. People of my generation grew up under the shadow of the bomb. Walter Miller launched the Adam Dome franchise of science fiction with his novel Canticle for Leibowitz written in penance for his role in destroying the oldest monastery in Europe. Then, one day, the threat was gone. Soviet communism lost its credibility and lively missionaries planted churches in the for former Soviet bloc. The largest congregation in Europe at the moment is a Pentecostal church in Kiev, founded by an African missionary. Russian schoolchildren soak up the Bible and Orthodox Christianity in their public schools. As he lay dying on the battlefield, Julian the Apostate hurled a handful of his own blood at the sky and said, Thou hast conquered, O Galilean. In the cosmic game of rock, paper, scissors, lizard, Spock, Marxism declared war upon God and those who believed in God. Today, nearly 100 million Chinese Christians make their political masters a little nervous, since they pledge allegiance to a power that transcends the barrel of the gun. Nationalism is still a power, since the Peace of Westphalia the nation-state gave people something bigger than themselves to belong to, fight for, die for. The daily paper replaced the breviary, and agents of the state, such as public school teachers, replaced the parish priest. In lieu of a liturgical language, people added a semi-artificial national language to the local, local patois. Collapsing worlds, such as the one we live in now, can spiral into chaos or be replaced. A major theme of my 2010 dissertation was how secular nationalism trumped traditional Islam as the Ottoman Empire collapsed. Yet, man does not live by bread alone, and it takes more than a full stomach to make a full life. The deity of nationalism is the nation itself, rather than any transcendent explanation for the nation. Is that all there is? Is that all there is? Well, Islam is still a power to reckon with, since Muslims take very seriously the two things derided by America's whole Hollywood culture, faith and family. Nearly a billion of our neighbors live dangerous but non-boring lives under the stern eye of Allah, convinced that a day of reckoning awaits on the other side of death. On the other hand, Islam depends upon a whole series of firewalls to maintain its hold on the imagination, and the Internet is poking holes through those firewalls. One of my heroes is the African Christian, probably a man of color, whose thinking and writing define the structure and self-concept of Europe for a thousand years. Like Turkish hero Kemal Ataturk, Augustine looked at a collapsing empire and said, You know, we can do better. And did. Both of these energetic leaders and teachers succeeded at the task we are faced with now. They provided a comprehensive new frame of reference. I suspect we are watching the slow-motion collapse of the American faith in the American way. Luke, companion of Paul, physician, historian, master, stylist, and compassionate observer, 
post-mortem a nation whose leaders failed to grasp the significance of their day. The Sadducees, a secular elite who viewed politics as the only ultimate reality, and their entertainment media franchise, the Pharisees and Scribes, joined forces to suppress the truth, caring more to feather their own nests than for their nation's salvation. We are also watching the unsteady but purposeful first steps of a new Christian culture growing up under the radar. Millions of American families, Catholic and Protestant, politely decline to render unto Caesar that which they assert belongs to God, the children entrusted to their care. Stay tuned. These are exciting days to live in. As scholars, writers, thinkers, workers, creators, we must, I believe, examine our own presuppositions and ponder the characteristics of a culture worthy to quietly, peacefully, and graciously replace what we have. Because the handwriting is on the wall, we have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. No nation can declare war upon its own past and its own future and endure in its present form. Answering the question of what to do when your world is collapsing motivated my Ph.D., and now I have my opportunity to help rebuild before the collapse. After 30 years of serving time in my day job as a technical writer, I am now a, co a college professor whose interactions with my students are shaped by Calvinism on steroids. These non-traditional students, my tribe, are a mixed batch. Christian, Jewish, Muslim, Hindu, gay, and straight. A few black swans, homeschool kids who are now atheists. Yet every one of them has a dream, a purpose, a goal they are pursuing for the glory of God, whether they admit it or not. As a faithful servant of the Most High God, my mission is to pour gasoline on those inner flames and help them find ways to achieve those tasks they were made for. I'm teaching online, reaching out and touching the world from my home office. Vicki, my wife of nearly 38 years, suffers early-onset Alzheimer's and needs someone with her all the time. My dad is edging up towards 90 and also benefits from having me on hand. I've been studying the Turkish language for 10 years now with the help of language partners from a neighboring university. Making very slow progress, to be honest, but if Islam lost its credibility tomorrow, a billion of our neighbors would be left adrift and begging us for answers as to what to do next. Studying one of their languages is a long lead time project, and waiting for the door to open is waiting too long. Befriending these sharp and personable young people, dining with them in their homes, having them over for meals and hours, was one of the great adventures of my life. This was a ministry the whole family, including my two youngest daughters, could participate in. And there are half a dozen or so doors I could knock on in the Turkish Republic where a warm welcome could be expected. Bottom line, we are products of the futures we believe in. At age 20, when I was a wild-eyed, long-haired, paisley-wearing, apocalypse-crazed Jesus freak, I could not think more than a week or two ahead. At the age of 59, I was awarded the Ph.D. in Communication Studies so as to make the best possible use of the next 30 or 40 years that God may allow me. One thing the 20-something Tom Smedley has in common with the 60-something version is a passionate desire to be in on what God is up to. What a ride! God is good. My name is Tom Smedley, and I am now, by the grace of God, kingdom-driven. <laughs>